Welcome. This is Bernard Bars. We are going to have two wonderful guests in this talk on consciousness, which is literally for a book on consciousness, but also a, a series of uh, videos and podcasts on consciousness. The words on consciousness are sort of very fortuitous, and I sort of slapped my forehead when I realized that unconsciousness is actually the title of Aristotle's book on consciousness, which is in Greek, it's called peripsyche, and it really means the conscious mind. And some people, some scholars who specialize in this kind of thing, even translated as the biology of the conscious mind, because Aristotle was a great biologist, and so he thought about everything that way. And unconsciousness, Aristotle's version, has practically everything worth saying on consciousness, and that was 25 centuries ago. And the only thing I believe that we've discovered since that time is that there's a ton of unconscious stuff which you cannot introspect on, so you don't know that it's there, right? It just frames, it interpenetrates, it precedes and it succeeds all of our conscious experiences. Most of my questions, I think, are going to be about that because I need to learn as much as I can. I'm here today with David Edelman, who is the son of Gerald Edelman, who we are also celebrating at this moment. And we're sitting in Gerald Edelman's library, and uh, David has his violin because he also, among many other things, is a musician. And David start, is currently calling himself a neuroscientist, starting off in paleoanthropologist, because this is anthropology going back 200,000 years or maybe 2 million, who knows? And my other guest is Mark Mitten, who is a wonderful professional magician who has thought very deeply about the process of making magic so that people in an audience will believe the impossible, essentially. And one of the things that I hope for from Mark is to tell me more about the unconscious components of magic. So this is what I'm curious about. And of course, everybody can say whatever they want. So Mark, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I started doing magic tricks when I was a nine-year-old kid. And then I started doing local shows in the area at 11 and local television at 13, then did a little show and then went to college, studied economics, but always did magic. Then I got a job in New York in publishing, but that was by day. And at night, I applied to be an apprentice to a great old magician that I'd first seen on Dick Cavett when I was 12 years old. And I became his apprentice. And by that, I mean, I'd go to his apartment every week for three or four nights a week, mm -hmm. starting at seven, and I'd often leave at two in the morning. And I'd just study magic with him. And mm -hmm. so in about two years, he taught me his repertoire of magic and stage and close-up. And, and his name was Slidini, but his real name was Contino Marucci. He was from the south of Italy, from a little town in Foggia. Then he went to Buenos Aires at 12, and he worked as a tailor, and he started studying magic, and he was also part of the original tango scene in Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. And so he thought about movement and these things in a very unusual way. He had a very strange approach to magic. So for five years, I spent with him, and eventually, after about a two years I left publishing and just was his apprentice. 
And then that led to many unusual things. Thank you very much, Mark. That's a, one of these odd courses in life, I guess, that really works out. So that's very interesting. And David, I know you've had your own individual course in your career as well, as well as starting, of course, being the son of your father, which I suspect was uh, spectacular. And then you took a degree, you took a PhD, I think, in paleoanthropology, which is mostly looking at bones, if I'm correct about that, and maybe hand axes and so on. And then you emerged as a, as a working neuroscientist studying mitochondria and all such things within the cell. And now you're sitting here. How'd you get here? Wow, it's a strange and circuitous story. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to most of my neuroscientist colleagues, but the reality is that one of the great narratives in my life, one of the great influences in my life is, is Darwinian evolution. And if you wanted to pick out a theme that's sort of central to everything that I've pursued professionally, intellectually, it's probably that. It's evolution. So that's the tie that binds. I started as a person interested in human paleontology. So yes, I was studying fossil bones. I was studying the origins of humankind in Africa and the elaboration of humankind in places like Europe uh, amongst the Neanderthals. And somehow, you know, at the end of that PhD process, I was still really, really interested and I fancied myself a Latter-day Indiana Jones until reality sort of burst through the door and said, no, kid, you know, not going to be easy to do that. Not a whole lot of jobs. So I, I extended my interest and I was always interested in the evolution of the human brain. And so that sort of drove me to pursue neuroscience. And when I became interested in neuroscience, I switched from dead things, essentially, that I could see with my naked eye, fossil bones, mm -hmm. where I, I had to come up with imaginative extrapolations, imaginative stories to understand the life ways of these long dead animals mm -hmm. that had only left their hard parts behind. And these and are just so stories. These are sort of just so stories. That's right. You're, you're reconstructing the past. Oh. And you have a little to go on, but not a whole lot. And I entered into this field where everything is really empirical or supposedly empirical. And you're studying living things, whether those living things are small sort of nerve cells under a microscope, as they, as they were for me at the very beginning of my neuroscientific career, mm -hmm. or cephalopods, which is something that, which is an area that I'm, I'm highly vested in these days. Now, for the um, rest of us, could you define cephalopods? Cephalopods are related to clams and mussels. They don't seem to know that they're related to clams and mussels, but they are. They're the most complex mollusks living, and they have these incredible nervous systems. They have these really large brains. There's no invertebrate in the world today that has a brain as large and complex as you know your run-of-the-mill cephalopod. When I say cephalopod, I'm talking about octopus, I'm talking about cuttlefish, I'm talking about squid and even nautilus. But nautilus are sort of strange, sort of distant cousins. They're very primitive. They're not nearly as advanced as, as squid, octopus. So in, in, in the popular world, we're talking about octopus, squid, and various other odd creatures that don't have any legs. Have arms or tentacles. Ah, right. And are they conscious? That is a question that is burning in my brain at the moment. It's not an easily fundable question. It's a really good question. And my gut tells me that, yes, they, they probably are. 
And that's based on a lot of similarities that you can sort of see both behaviorally and sort of in the anatomy mm. of an octopus, say, relative to uh, your garden variety higher vertebrates, such as a bird or a mammal or us. I understand that some octopi have escaped from their aquariums and stolen food at night or something along those lines. They do these things and, and they're not apocryphal tales. They do happen. They've happened in my lab a number of times. Yep. My poor unfortunate wife, who acted as my lab manager, had to deal with that one summer, a few escapes, a few escape artists. <laughs> and she had these terrible stories about being stressed out on her hands and knees looking for, you know, number 31 or Polita the octopus, who had literally just scampered out of the aquarium onto the floor and run behind the aquarium where Heidi couldn't get her. Um, and five minutes later emerged, seemingly panicked, if octopuses can be panicked, running toward Heidi, really high speed, especially for, for wow. a cephalopod. Yeah, as if, as if to say, get me the hell back into my water, I can't breathe, you know, oh, something really. like that. They really are completely water adapted, and, and so they... They are, but they can, they can live on land for a little while, uh -huh. 20 or 30 minutes in a, in a pretty humid mm. environment, yeah, yeah. And we go from cephalopods to magic. <laughs> okay. And our magicians <laughs> conscious? Often, they can be, <laughs> but this is a good question that's also very difficult to fund. <laughs> <laughs> One of my concerns, of course, and we'll talk a lot about this, is this business about similar things that the brain processes. And some of those, one class of things appears in consciousness with colors and shapes and all that kind of stuff, and some other identical class of inputs, phys physically identical, that are processed in the brain, often very deeply, and then do not emerge in, in consciousness. So, and magic seems to me one of the domains in which perhaps, tell me if this is right or not wrong, but in which perhaps Every trick in the world comes down to making certain things conscious for the audience and meanwhile doing all kinds of other things that are surprisingly not perceived by the audience. Well, yeah, this goes back to something that we've discussed, which is that when cognitive scientists and people, philosophers and biologists look at magic, they don't know the range of the way that magicians approach the subject. So there's a lot of projection that goes on and a lot of assumption. The way to think about it is if a magician tells other magicians that he's working with a psychologist or a philosopher, it's much like a psychologist telling other psychologists that he's working with a professional magician. It's very meaningful to the psychologist and meaningless to the magician, <laughs> right? So if a psychologist or a philosopher or a biologist, you know, in the field of consciousness, start talking about working with a professional magician, then obviously, you know, they have different nomenclatures and different approaches and different frames. So often that discussion can't take place unless some magicians take the time to learn the, the paradigm of thought and the nomenclature of the psychologist, biologist, and philosopher that are discussing consciousness. So as a result, most of the discussion taking place is you've got this age-old form of magic tricks, something that's been literally performed before any written, from what we can tell, magic is as old as the hills and it's pre-written word, so, so or pre-published word. Whereas- and Possibly pre-spoken word. Pre-spoken, well, it's absolutely. 
So what's interesting here is you've got cognitive psychology is only from the time of Ulrich Neiser's book in 1967. You have a, a new field defining an old field. So uh, the first thing I think in this whole subject is to look at the, the different way that magicians outside of people that have learned the nomenclature of consciousness think about it. And I think what you find is actually some very interesting work being done that doesn't really come under work. It's just incredible, like you're suggesting, mm. incredible empirical testing of people mm. trying something, seeing what works, doing it, and finding that other things simply don't work and not doing it. But to, to, to even see it, you have to look at the subject for more than 30 years. And some of my best tricks have taken like 30 years to develop because it took like 30 years of trials. Like once I had an idea of what was possible, then to, or it might be an idea that I've seen from somebody else. This is a whole other idea too that's hidden within magic, which is are scientists and artists and magicians, are we really craftspeople? I mean, I, I like to think of magic as a craft. I don't like to define it as a science or an art because I'm highly dependent on the entire community of magicians that have come before me. And I like to be very straightforward about that. I, and in ways, sometimes when I talk to scientists I, or philosophers or psychologists, I get uncomfortable because they're not as aware to me of their their own community's history as they should be. Right. Shall we toss the ball to David? Please. I think going back to sort of the central theme of the day, the nature of consciousness and you know what the three of us sort of bring to the table, we're all interested in it and for some overlapping reasons, of course. I think there is sort of a mystery to any complex biological phenomenon in the world. And it, it, it makes it very attractive. It's actually a very uh, charismatic sort of thing to invest mystery in something. You know, something that Mark said to me a long, long time ago, almost when we first met, which resonates with me to this day, is the notion of knowing what you don't know. That is to say, you know, understanding sort of the bounds of your knowledge and respecting, you know, having a deep respect for that, right? And I think that dovetails into some of the stuff that you mentioned earlier, Mark, in particular, how scientists see magicians and how scientists try to bring in, sometimes bring in magicians, as we've seen in the past. And yet maybe they're still talking different languages. And that's because, A, the scientist clearly doesn't know the lingo of the magician, but more importantly, they may not know the background of their own field sufficiently well. They don't, they don't understand the history sufficiently well, but they don't, fundamentally, they may not know the boundaries of their own knowledge. And I wouldn't say that I'm comfortable with the boundaries of my own knowledge, but I have a, a deep respect for it, even if it sometimes makes me uncomfortable. It fascinates me that there are these great sort of unanswered questions. And do I think that we will, in my lifetime, really understand the sort of the detailed processes underlying consciousness? I'm not so sure. I think that we'll understand a lot of it. But will that mean that we'll be able to do this incredible, you know, sort of, if you'll excuse the expression, mind reading trick? Will we be able to predict because we understand the process or a lot of the mechanism underlying the process of consciousness? Will we be able to predict people or non-human animals actions on that basis? And I think the answer, at least as far as I'm concerned, is probably no. It's so complicated. It's such a complicated thing. And it's, a, it, it's sort of like Darwinian evolution. You know, one of the great problems that scientists wrestle with in, in, the, in the case of evolution is that it's not like benchtop empirical science where you get a very binary result. You go in, 
you do some sort of a cell culture experiment, you throw a particular agent or something on them, a neuromodulator in the case of neurons, and they do something very specific. And you go, ah, voila, there's my result. Well, you've just ripped the guts out of the complexity of it. That's not the natural world. That's not because... nature. Because? Well, you've taken sort of this element. It's a cell in a dish. It's a neuron or a nerve cell in a petri dish. It's not a nervous system. And there's no great big wide world out there. The world effectively is the agar or whatever, you know, medium you have or the LB broth, whatever you, medium you're growing the cell in, and the plastic of the dish and the air, and that's about it. And you've just ripped the guts out of the complexity. What we're not comfortable as biologists dealing with yet is this notion that we can understand a lot of mechanism. We can kind of build good, reasonable models. Yet the question will get us to the point where we have a perfect record of predictability. Can we predict? No. And and we probably never, we never will. Well, even when I hear that, when I hear about predictability, the first thing I think, so of course, as a magician, you know, I spend my life with people looking at things where they don't have all the information, right? right. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's, it goes to your thing about a limited capacity and it kind of goes directly there, right? So when I hear people talking about predicting behavior, then I wonder, are you predicting behavior of somebody that's tracking that you're predicting their behavior? So if we, if we think about this in a very modern context, right, we know that Google and Amazon and Facebook are tracking our clicks, but we know that, but I don't think that there's a deep awareness of that yet. I don't think the public is, has really studied psychographics and the way that elections are done these days. It's done without awareness. So those models are very resilient. What I'm waiting for is when people are very aware that they are being tracked and what countermeasures they'll take. So as a magician, one thing, like when I hear about predictability, I immediately think about countermeasures because uh, what's funny is if you read in the literature, you can't find this within cognitive psychology unless you basically go to defense department studies. If you're talking about Darwin, you're talking about survival. So if you're not thinking like a defense department person, then it's really hard to go into the subject with any level of detail. So for instance, even in prediction loops, you know, the way that the Air Force thinks about it is it called a OODA loop, right? They have a very sophisticated model, which would take a lot of time to explain, but already it's second and third and fourth and fifth order to track how you're being tracked and how you need to react in real time. So do I take it from both of you that the, what I think of as the hype about mind, brain reading or mind reading, whatever it may be, is slightly over the top? I can't speak for Mark, but I would say, yeah, I would say it is a little over the top. And it's, and, and again, you have to consider when you, when you bore down into the details of how these experiments are, are built, you know, when you have these guys uh, who are using functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, and they're basically reconstructing from a pattern, seemingly a pattern of activity in different brain areas, what somebody might have said or what somebody's thinking about saying, you know, given a certain context, well, you've got to explore, you've got to understand the fact that they've really kind of dumbed down the world to that subject, to that human sitting in the fMRI. They've made it really, really simple. So they're essentially, they're doing something like what, and I, forgive me, Mark, because I'm out of my element, but it's almost like a, a forced deck sort of thing, that they're loading, they're loading up the contingencies and He's like, referring to a trick. So take a card out. Take any card you oh, wish. Oh, I, I don't want to do this. No, yeah. Just, just, just take, take one. Doesn't yeah. matter. Good. 
And then I'm going to make prediction of the card that you took. All right. So just look at your card so I can't see it. And I just want you to say yes to everything. So if I say, is your card, whatever I, whatever feature I give you, I want you to say yes to every question. Okay. Do you understand? Okay. So uh, is your card red? You say yes. Yes. Is your card black? You say yes. Yes. Is your card a heart? You say yes. Yes. A diamond? Yes. A club? Yes. A spade? Yes. Okay, so your club is definitely a black card. Is that correct? You have to say yes. Am I supposed to <laughs> yes, tell, just tell say the yes. truth? No, oh, keep oh, lying. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then, of course, your card is a spade. Yes? Yes. Go- okay, good. And your card is either a number, a face. Say a number. You say yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, a yes, face yes, card. Yes. You say yes. Yes. An ace. You say yes. Yes. It's a face or an ace. Is that yes? You say yes. Yes. And your card is an ace. You say yes. Yes. So your card is the ace of spades. You say yes. Yes. And then show everybody that it definitely is the ace of spades. Ta-da! <laughs> right, so <laughs> there you go. So that that's, that's well. The point is, once you're in once you're in the wrong frame, you can play with people. Mm-hmm. And and one thing I'd add is that actually I would say that from a deception standpoint, the question of whether these prediction of there's there's actually once again, you can't give a first order answer to a complex question, right? So I would say it's a complex question. What do I mean by that? Does the person who believes they're accurately predicting behavior believe that they're right? Right. Right? Does the person, do they have the information that they need? Because you have to take into account the person that they're predicting might be predicting whether or not they're being predicted, right? Now we're in a new ball game. Right? So now you're looking at the deceiver and the deceived, which can go in both directions. Let me stop you just for a second. What do you mean by frame? What I mean is exactly what's the point of view that you're looking at these complex questions. So it's a point of view. It could be a part of someone else. In other words, if I'm performing for the audience and I do something that looks really great from my perspective, what does it mean? So it's your point of view and the audience's point of view? Well, yeah, but if I if I don't weight it heavily in terms of the audience's point of view, then I wouldn't work very much as a magician. I obviously have to so weight you it. Really, really have to understand. Yeah, but I only have my point of view with which to understand their point of view. Okay. So the point is, it already is weighted. Mm-hmm. So if I pretend for one moment that I can truly be in the mind of my audience, that's also delusional. So I'm immediately limited and come up against these things. So immediately, when I hear, you know, for instance, psychologists. Uh, or like Stan DeHaan talking about the way somebody views something. Right. Immediately, I think that's complex, but not complex enough. And I go searching for the people doing cockpit display, right? So I, I luckily met a guy named Bo Gehring. And Bo Gehring worked on, he was one of the creators of graphics, of modern computer graphics. And he worked in Hollywood. And then he was pulled out by the Air Force. After Tron, they became very, the, the Disney movie Tron, they became very interested in the way they were thinking about perception. So then they pulled in some people from Hollywood and Bo had an important position. So luckily he's the father of a friend of mine and he went in, it described with great detail the what happened in the F5s and F15s when a kind of computer, a cray, they're called a cray in a can, pilot's associate. A cray, a, can? a, cray, a cray computer, a cray oh, supercomputer. Computer. Right. Sure. So a cray in a can, it was called a pilot's associate, right? And it was a very politically delicate program because 
the senators and congressmen voting on these programs were usually pilots. So they hated the idea of the pilot being relegated super, to second class or, or somehow having to have an assistant. Right. Sorts. But immediately you can think about if you're thinking about perception in such specific terms, that makes much more sense to me than as a, as a magician than most of the discussion of perception within the psychology, philosophy and biology community, because immediately you have people under the gun. You've got people in a cockpit with a surface-to-air missile coming at them in 2.3 seconds, and they have to make a decision. This is very different than uh, Kahneman and Tversky and behavioral economics. This is life and death. Mm -hmm. How do you get the information to them as efficiently as possible? It turns out that vision is actually one of the slowest systems to use. Vision is very deceptive. So Bo, even though he was one of the true masters of visual cognition, mm -hmm. switched his systems to oral and auditory. auditory. The reason being, it was able... Uh, by using the, the Bose systems. Surround. Well, no, surround. specifically the noise reduction. So basically the pilots were going deaf because there was no noise reduction headphones. Mm -hmm. So that was originally a classified program that put noise reduction headphones on the F5. And, and Bose is B-O-S-E. E, yes. And, and it's those wonderful family of speakers and headphones and so on. Yeah, that now we all use on planes. And noise-canceling noise technology. Exactly. Yeah. That's where that's from. But then that allowed the dimensional sound to be added, a 3D sound, mm -hmm. which they've tried in Hollywood in several attempts, mm -hmm. but actually it's kind of easy. You just need microphones about the distance away from our, as our ears, and you can give people in, with incredible accuracy, basically directional information through their auditory system. Right. So what's funny is mm -hmm. this is a system where people just studying have been, like Stan, have been focused on the visual system, but people that are focused on life and death situation are naturally start to look for other systems that are more efficient and also a profound part of, but granted also much more complex. It's hard to talk about the auditory system in the determinist ways that people talk about the visual system. You immediately have to start thinking in terms of second and third order, but that's exactly where you wanna be when you're thinking about survival. So Bernie, just, I mean, kind of bringing us back because ultimately as a biologist and a neuroscientist in particular, one of the things that's vexing to me is this real dilemma about how we study complex systems. And that goes for what your friend Bo Gehring had to deal with when he was, you know, sort of co-opted into the, an Air Force program and had to understand something that truly meant life or death to pilots. Oh, sure. But also has to do with, you know, kind of the, the path that I described for myself earlier going from paleoanthropology, essentially human paleontologist, a guy, a bone guy, to neuroscience. So the interesting thing that informed my journey or that made my entry into neuroscience rather novel was the notion that I already had a deep appreciation of a system that was not easily understandable, mostly because a lot of it was, it was sort of conjectural, it was just so stories, and I was using the elements of biomechanics and certain studies of living animals, comparatively speaking. So, so let, let me reduce this to something very concrete. Mm -hmm. So you find a bone and pick any bone you like. Okay. And and give me an example of a jaw or, or a joint or something like sure. that. That tells you the difference between apes and hominids. Absolutely. So one example that's near and dear to my heart because I wrote a 540-page doctoral dissertation on it is the femur. My dad used to joke with me. He used to say, Dave, you know, you're the only person on earth I can imagine writing 540 pages on a single bone. How did that happen? <laughs> but, but the reality is 
There is a lot of information there. It's a weird combination. It's a strange kind of science, but it's still a science. Paleontology is a science. So what I had to do with a, a femur, whether it was an, a, a femur of a chimpanzee, a gorilla, an orangutan, a sloth, or a human, mm -hmm. or a human ancestor, a Neanderthal, an early version of, of, a modern, of humans, I was dealing with most, mostly the ends of the bone, the sort of the business end, the, the proximal end where the ball of the joint is, right. that allows you to rotate your hip, that allows you to walk, all of these because different things. everything depends on that. A lot of things depend, yeah. Pretty, pretty much, your whole locomotor pattern is dependent on how you walk around in the world is dependent on it. And we can tell a lot from that because of the morphology, because of the shape of the bone, and because we can avail ourselves of modern animals that are still alive and still adapting to modern environments, we can kind of make reasonable, educated conjectures about the soft tissue around that and about the life ways of these oh. early oh. hominines. These I, early I gotta hominines. ask you a question. Yeah. Does anybody have a femur? Anybody? Does everybody have Oh, a... everybody have it. Well, and if would you're... you care to describe... If you're a vertebrate... Uh, or even point yeah. uh, to the location of the femur. Yeah, so your femur is your, your you know, essentially your thigh bone, yeah. basically. Thigh bone's connected to the... <laughs> but, you know, every vertebrate worth, worth his or her salt has, has a, a femur, you know, they're, they're universal. Uh, amongst the vertebrates. Octopuses, of course, don't because they don't have bones, per se. But but the bottom line is the example is, is really interesting because you can glean from that example, from that dry fossilized piece of tissue, mm -hmm. you can glean a lot of information about how the animal lived. But you're still deal dealing with a fair degree of uncertainty. Now, the question arises, mm -hmm. is that still a legitimate science in the same sense that a lab-bound science is science, like molecular biology or cellular biology, where I'm looking literally at cells behaving in a dish, neurons firing in a dish, and I can record them, I can do all these things, and they're doing what neurons do, but they're sitting in a dish. But I can empirically test certain things and get very binary results from these single cells sitting in a dish. And you cannot, I can't uh, do in, that. in the field, you cannot replicate a transition between Australopithecines and, and early genus homo and right. Yeah, uh, you, you cannot recap that because it's too many years yeah, ago. The experiments are run. The experiments yeah. run. It's right. over. Mm. But that doesn't make it any less of a science. So I come into neuroscience, and I think that this is a, a, a something that sort of informs your view as well. Your view of consciousness, in particular, the most complex brain process you can imagine, or something that involves the most complex activity in a brain that you can imagine. Right. There's a, a similar line there. Uh, and the line is that you're dealing with such complexity and so so many unknowns. And yet, out of the data that we do have, you can tease out an awful lot. You, you don't have to shortchange the study of consciousness simply because you can't do all of the manipulations as precisely as you can do on a dish of cells under a fume hood in a laboratory. It's still a science, it's still legitimate. And in fact, I see a lot of parallels between the rather newish science of consciousness and paleontology, believe it or not, because we are, we are essentially, it's not exactly going on faith, but we are basically saying, look, we can observe patterns, and a lot of those patterns are reproducible, but between time A and time B, if you're watching a conscious animal doing what they're doing, and you're sort of honing in on some aspect of their brain activity. Dollars to donuts, the activity that represents more or less 
an interaction between that conscious aware, that aware animal and the world, even if it's a similar circumstance later or the same circumstance later that presents itself to that animal, the actual brain activity is not going to be identical. It's going to be a pattern that you can recognize because it sort of fits into a species of patterns, mm. a general gestalt of a pattern, but it, it's, there's no way it could possibly be identical because between time A and time B, cells die, um, connections recede, things happen to the system, and yet we can still tease out patterns of activity that seem to be emblematic of conscious states. So uh, let me reduce this to my consciousness. When I was a kid, I must have been given one of those red play balls for babies. And somehow I learned to crawl across the carpet and bump into the red ball, mm. maybe with my nose, first of all, because my aim probably was not very good. Mm -hmm. uh, but within four years, I got to be pretty good in slapping around these red balls. I'm way much older right now, mm -hmm. but I can still see red balls, so I'm still conscious of what appears to be the same play object that babies are conscious of. And my brain's different. A lot of my neurons have died. Mm -hmm. Actually, a lot of my neurons have been born, mm -hmm. which is the most recent scuttlebutt. Uh, from very good science that shows that during adulthood, what's called adult neurogenesis actually happens and it happens all the time. And what that implies is that these little proto-neurons, which probably swim in the fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid that runs from the spine to go into two beautiful wings inside of each hemisphere, that uh, there are stem cells floating around, and then they find a little place in the structure called the hippocampus, and apparently they dock and start crawling in uh, some, what's called a faded mm -hmm. direction, a direction that is determined by X number of variables, right. uh, and then it moves into a place where it can do whatever the right thing is. Sure, they pathfind. They do a path, sort of a pathfinding. Pathfinding exercise, right? Exactly. So here we are, a different brain, yeah. a, a different sense of self in the same individual in over time. Exactly. This is not a simple thing. Not at all. And and what's really intriguing about that is, and again, picking out a light motif from my own my own personal and professional life, it dovetails really well into this into evolutionary studies, into evolutionary biology. Why? Because evolution is very much like that. Now, of course, most of evolution, most of our study of evolution involves ex post facto reconstruction of stuff that's happened hundreds of thousands or millions or hundreds of millions of years ago, and we have little tiny fragments to indicate what was going on, but they're only fragments. But the point about it is that evolution is ongoing, that this is a, a changing and changeable set of a series of events, that one moment in time is not the same as the next, and that you know animals change over time, and yet we can still pick out patterns and sort of organizations and structure and function that are kind of, they're, they're leitmotifs, they persist, and we can recognize them as such, even if even if the actual individual activities, the individual patterns are somewhat different from one another, no two individuals are exactly alike you know, over time, yet 
it's something that we can study these sorts of patterns. Even if it's not, there's no such thing as perfect reproducibility in evolution. And, you know, people often talk about bringing back the woolly mammoth. Or if they're really on, a, on, a, on an intellectual binge and they're, you know, they've got a swaggering, towering ego, they talk about bringing back Tyrannosaurus or bringing back a Stegosaur or, or whatever, or Triceratops. And the reality of that is, you know, you could probably manipulate a few chicken genes here and there. You can do a few different things. But you'll never know the exact context of that particular moment in time that yielded a tyrannosaur. So what you will get may be sort of tyrannosaur-like. You know, you may pick out certain adaptations. You know, you get a chicken that all of a sudden has teeth because you, you flipped certain genetic switches. You were able to do certain things. Um, you could use the CRISPR technology to, to literally gene edit. C-R-I-S-P-R. R. CRISPR, you skip the E. Uh, but but the bottom line is we can do all these wonderful manipulations genetically speaking and yet there's no way that I see us being able to exactly reproduce the Tyrannosaurus moment in time. It may be something so, sort of similar. So to clarify, evolution, if you were to ask the average person on the street about evolution, they would have to talk about a long period of time. Right? Generally, yeah. But you're talking about increasingly short periods of time down to the fractions of a second. Well... Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of relevant. I mean, I think the thing about it is that, that you know, how individual animals develop in the womb and, sl and just afterwards. So and developmental periods, and those are months? And yeah, well, they're, they're months, they're days. But those periods are relevant to understanding the evolution of animal form, how animals change over geological history, over right. evolutionary time. Mm -hmm. Because in, in, in essence, that trajectory of development is the thing that informs animal shape, right? So the animal takes on its shape as a result of certain developmental processes. And those processes in turn have to be influenced perhaps by selectional events in the world that, that are relevant to evolution. You can't understand evolution except probably the details of evolution and the mechanisms, except in the context of individual development, understanding how a bunch of clumps of cells That's, become. That is, I, I think that point is much neglected, but it's so important in respect to consciousness, yes. the, the conscious waking brain, because people fail to understand how much of it has to do with individuality so individuality, and so what you have, let's pretend that we have two babies in the womb, and for all we can tell, they are, quote, identical. Mm -hmm. And then they emerge into the sunlight, and why are they not exact copies of each other? Right, because there are so many elements and so many factors environmentally, and by environment, I'm not just talking about the great big outside world, I'm talking about the womb, I'm talking about all of these sort of microenvironments as well. There's so many things that can't possibly be identical across individuals. They're not going to be exactly Well, you identical. say they can't possibly be identical, but why couldn't the god of evolution... <laughs> the god of evolution, oh, that's heresy. <laughs> well, it's Terry Pratchett, actually. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you're also dancing around the area of what makes Dr. Gerald Edelman, Dr. Gerald Edelman, and the controversy with which he discovered the structure of the antibody. Thanks to David's older brother, who I went to college with, he, he introduced me to 
David and his family, including Dr. Edelman. And this story I find to be tremendously exciting. So can you set the premise? The premise is, how did Dr. Edelman win his Nobel Prize at a very young age? And he did it by defending Rodney Porter's idea. This is where you should take over because it's very technical. The human interest story, which is kind of how I track it as a Mm non-scientist, is that it took looking beyond a simplistic way of looking at the the process of the interaction between the antibody and the antigen. Okay, uh, what do those terms mean? So, the, well, this is where we should go to so you the to scientist pick, in the room. You want me to pick it up? Okay. Well, so, you know, the antibody, uh, immunoglobulin, is, is just one cell in, in a sort of a vast... David, well, can we just get an email? Let's, let's wind back yeah. to 1972. Yeah. Well, to to when he was working on the immune system. Yeah, when the whole puzzle emerged of how the hell does the immune system recognize something that's never existed in the face of the world. Exactly, that has never been even imagined and still be able to catch it so as to defend the body against invading toxins and bugs and all that. And believe it or not, it's interesting because it's not something that anybody could have imagined in the early 60s but that question of how an immune system, you you know, a chemist can sit in a lab and literally come up with a chemical compound that's never seen the light of day on earth ever in the history of the planet and no animal has ever been exposed to it. And yet you inject that compound into a rabbit or a human being and that rabbit or human being mounts a successful immune response. How the hell do it know? So it defends itself against that against something specific that, molecule yes. that has never existed in the planetary biosphere. Right, or perhaps in the greater realm. Or I mean, in but, the cosmos. In the cosmos. But, 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 you know, and this goes back, this is actually interesting because this dovetails into the problem of consciousness in a sort of a weird, mm. in, in a way that people never would have predicted in the early 60s, mm. which is... The notion of fit, right? So back when people starting to ponder the whole question of how the immune response works, mm-hmm. how can you do that? How can you put something into a rabbit that that rabbit's immune system has never seen, and yet that rabbit's immune system can successfully defend itself, defend the rabbit against that? And, and, ant- and, and that means it has to fit. Well, the, but the concept of fit is really important because back in the 1950s, a lot mm-hmm. of story people, including the great Linus Pauling, believed that it was instruction. But essentially, just what do I mean by instruction? To give you an example, literally, there's the example of the computer, where you know computers in and of themselves can't do these incredible things that we task them to do unless there's instruction from outside. And what is the instruction from outside? It's the computer program. Okay. You're, you know, in back in the '60s, you you take a bunch of Hollerith cards, this thick stack of cards, of mm-hmm. punch cards. You stick them into an IBM 360, and three minutes later, it solves a problem that our iPhone can can solve in you know a, a femtosecond or a nanosecond. But, but at that time, it was not it, trivial. It, it was not trivial. But the bottom line is, you're instructing from outside. Mm-hmm. The information or the meaning, if you will, if you want right. to in, invest it with with a term that is is more relevant to what we're talking about today, consciousness. Mm-hmm. The meaning comes from outside. Well, this is how they viewed the immune system, how most scientists viewed the immune system in the 50s. They thought that what happened was the antigen mm-hmm. comes in, the foreign invader comes in, 
Mm-hmm. Goes, is introduced into the humoral system, encounters an antibody, and what does the antibody do? The antibody, is, which is a protein, a really complex, large protein, it reconforms, it changes its shape to match this invader rather exactly, like a lock and key, mm-hmm. right? And then a signal is sent to the cell to which that antibody is attached. It says, make more cells, divide, and therefore make more of me. So you get more of this me particular shape. Me being the defender. Me, me being the defender, the antibody. Yeah. And everybody believed that because, wow, that's pretty elegant and simple. And, and it should be pointed out, in a static state, mm-hmm. that's not an inaccurate way of thinking about it. No, in a static state, very much so. But as soon as you pull back and you invest this with dynamism and change and all these other things and animal individuality, so individuality not, from the cell so up. Cats may look alike, but the reality is that they're not. They're not exactly alike. But, but the bottom line is... When you look at that system, it's really easy to fall into the trap of saying, oh, wow, it's instruction. And then they started to learn, you know, this this really wouldn't explain it. And moreover, mm-hmm. mathematically, if you sort of sort of calculated what would have to kind of occur, this wouldn't be f- really flexible enough. It didn't explain the reality of the phenomenon we were observing. So much later and, on... And the can, reason for that, uh, by complexity at this point, you mean the sheer repertoire. The sheer repertoire of incoming, of incoming possible and viruses and and historically, can you explain how Rodney Porter got to that idea? Well, that's a mixed bag, and it was right. not just Rodney Porter. But I, yeah. I don't want to. I, I, I want to kind of avoid getting into too many details for the, for our purposes because we want to get back to consciousness. Right, right. But the bottom line is, later on, it became really, really clear that this instruction thing would just not fly. So certain people, including Porter, but also including certain other guys like uh, Neil Shierna, some famous immunologists at the time who were no longer famous, we barely recognize their names these days, came up with the notion that, well, wait a second, maybe the repertoire of antibodies was already there. Maybe there was already a library of many different shapes of antibodies that pre-exist, they, they, they predate the encounter with the antigen. They're let, already let me in just system. clarify again, mm-hmm. because it's good to hear more than once. Mm-hmm. The antibodies are the defenders. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the antigens are the invaders. Are the invaders. Exactly. So we gotta keep track of which is which. Gotta keep track. And okay. so it became clear that what was really going on was that you had hundreds of millions of different possible shapes of antibodies. By shapes I mean the folding of the protein. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of millions of these different shapes. And moreover, you could generate more and more different shapes. You could generate the diversity over time. You kept on reconfiguring the DNA and changing the configuration of the protein. And so you had this huge variety, this huge repertoire. And then the world, meaning the outside invaders, comes in and it selects from that repertoire. And in a sense, that, that is akin to kind of how... At least some people are dealing with the problem of of consciousness now, which is to say we have to avoid sort of this notion of a sort of instructed or on the other side, a pre-programmed system. It doesn't fill the bill. It doesn't explain. But when we're confronting these systems, whether it's the immune system or it's a conscious brain, we're dealing with an enormity of, of variability. I mean, the, the variability, the complexity, the diversity of those systems is just, it's hard to imagine. It's really hard to imagine. And so there's a lot of commonality there. And it makes a lot of scientists, and neuroscientists included, 
rather uncomfortable, as you probably know. I'm sure you know. Let's pretend we're talking about Mark's brain here. Okay. And, and, and Mark is a very conscious person, and he's been conscious since, at least since birth, and here he encounters this magician. He somehow interacts with this fellow and learns, and I think that takes a lot of sensory motor. Mark's cortex is changing even as we speak, obviously, because he's constantly adapting to things, being a great magician, and that's what they seem to do, I understand, looking at it from the outside, knowing nothing about it. And so, how did you get there? Well, just a, a quick explanation. The kind of magic that I do is often in high-pressure circumstances that, that's very intimate with basically like private events, doing things where I have to adapt quickly. So that's my specialty. Whereas if I was somebody who was doing a stage show where the whole thing is carefully scripted out right. and there's a lighting plan and there's a script and there, then obviously people who think that way about magic think in a very different way. Right. That's, that's closer to, I think, to, that's more static. Mm -hmm. So I do have an adaptive way and that does happen to match really well with the person that I studied with. And it might be one reason why I was attracted and interested in his kind of work. So basically, I was really attracted to, to the specialty of physical misdirection, which is, is a way of thinking about the possibilities without language, you know, that, that happens. So what allows me, so for instance, if I reach under here and I pull out this Kleenex. Dirty, I, dirty handkerchief. Is it dirty? No, no, it's actually clean. <laughs> is this yours? <laughs> Did you have that in there? Uh, no, I can keep it on my right. arm so, actually. But it, but it could be, it could idea. have been dirty. And if I if I if I put it back, then of course then it can appear under my my sleeve as well. Or I can Very actually nice. throw Very it nice. up, and then nice. and then it appears under the coffee cup, you know, oh. or wherever you want it to appear, right? So, or you can do the, you know <coughs> like that. <laughs> uh, you can make it silly. You can kind of create the effect that you want, and you'll notice. It's not so language dependent, right? So basically, whatever there's another story that's going on right. underneath the language story. So again, if you slow things down, if you look statically at something, then language comes to the forefront. Think the systems like vision come to the forefront. You know, there's certain things where once we start putting the spotlight on certain areas, mm -hmm. you know, and just like I can fool you through attention control, like through, you know, I can palm it there, but actually it should be, oh, it should have been there, but actually I put it back under here like that. And then you can throw it up in the air like that. Then it comes down there like that. And it just, just as effectively, there's a certain point at which it becomes so silly that actually if you go like this, then you can't, oh, sorry, I left it over here when I did that. And then I put it, so actually, if, and then you can get all confused or, and then put it, you know, or, you know, like that. And I can start telling sillier and sillier stories, right? And that are not language dependent. So that's the kind of magic that I was interested in because it's, it's to me, it's, it's really fun. And also it kind of breaks out of this. It, it's an older style. It's from, from a, a time that's, that's closer to, I believe, the magic of just like, uh, you know, a caveman picking up a rock and fooling somebody and having fun with it. So I'm kind of interested in that. It actually, ironically, has a lot to say, even though it's not rooted in language. It's not rooted in language, but deception is a biological, I wouldn't call it a constant, but it's a theme of biology that goes all the way through, right? Well, absolutely. So when you're talking about the invaders, the antigens, and the, you know, the antibodies, the defenders, 
you know, an important part of the story is that both of those, you know, sides, those teams win and both of those sides lose, right? When, like when the host dies. Sure, but it might not die. And, you know, sometimes those attackers yeah. will kill the organism and sometimes they'll just give the organism a common cold and they'll sneeze for a couple of weeks and then th things will keep on going. Right. Right. But how we even think of, like, actually, if you, and then, then also, then we need to look at all these systems differently. Because when we study, like, take a Bonnie Bassler, a great bacteriologist, she discovered quorum sensing. That actually, that she, when she studied the bacteria, that not only were they monitoring themselves, they were monitoring the other bacteria around right. them and mm -hmm. sensing, do I have a chance for a successful attack or do I not have a chance? Right. So that's Q-U-A, Q-U-O. R-U-M. Yes, right. Quorum. It's right. like a quorum in a meeting. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. This is another problem that if we get into a cognitivist model where we get in danger. So if the conversation going on with bacteria is only chemical, right? Does that mean that they're not aware? Are they not conscious? You know, we can go to what extent is a the invading antigen aware? To what extent are they not aware? But that doesn't mean it can't kill you. And that speaks to... You know something that would would emerge as a theme, I'm sure, sometime in this discussion anyway. Yeah. Which is, you know, unconscious processes, unconscious processing, and the nature. You know, how far down consciousness can actually go? How simple of an organism can we impute conscious processing to? And the bottom line is, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about this. And the intriguing thing is that I think you, I, and, and Mark would agree that, again, to reiterate, conscious, consciousness involves the most, probably the most complex of brain activity and brain processing imaginable. Well, um, it takes up most of our cranium. Yeah. So it, what is right. 80%? I forget exactly. It's some, some big Pretty cube. close, that's yeah. right. And so the question you have to ask is, well, Let's maybe start with the assumption that in order to be conscious, you have to have some sort of a nervous system. Now, that may ruffle some feathers because there are people out there who really believe, speaking of bacteria, that you can, you know, impute some sort of conscious motivation to a single cell organism. So I have to get on my high horse about that because one of the useful things about science is that we study the simplest things we could find. And while it may be true uh, that there are plasma organisms mm -hmm. that live in the sun and they're perfectly conscious and they're constantly bitching at each other, like we just what, uh, like other conscious beings do. But postulating that is kind of outside of our known circle. And so it makes sense for science to start with fruit flies mm -hmm. or start with peas. Mm -hmm. And then you learn a tremendous amount, amazing amount, actually, about fruit flies and peas sure. and inheritance. And Darwin didn't know about this, actually, but it turns out to be a Darwinian process after all, mm -hmm. if, if you agree with that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I think the practical answer from the viewpoint of science is to, to not draw absolute lines, mm -hmm. but I personally am comfortable talking about uh, mammals, reptiles, and birds, which is only a zillion living things on planet Earth. Right. Uh, and that's big enough for now. In the case of uh, all three of those, are they phyla? Are they yeah, taxons? Phyla. Yeah, they're, whatever they are. Generally phyla, that's right. Phyla, okay. Yeah. Uh, and phyla means tree, right? 
Yeah, like means, roughly, it's derived from a tree, a tree-like structure. That's right. So let me simply say the last point in this little segment that all those critters have cortex or things that are so close to cortex that the people who study them, the comparative biologists, are currently demanding that we change the name of the structure in birds and reptiles to cortex. Mm -hmm. We have to admit, we have to uh, really reflect the consensus among the, the, the best experts. Let's just talk about critters that have cortex. Mm. That's fair enough. And one of the things that we can always fall back on is the human case, which tells us that as humans, we know, you know, with some degree of certainty that we're aware at certain points of things happening in the world or things happening in our head. And that that awareness is somehow tied to activity in the cortex. And that is a certainty. We have evidence of that, which is hard and fast. My point about going to, you know, sort of riffing off of Mark's quorum sensing and bacteria as single cell organisms mm -hmm. is to say these organisms, as is the case with all organisms, are capable and have behavioral capacity. They behave. They adapt. Behavior is tied to adaptation in the world. I mean, behaving in the world also necessarily sort of has the connotation of adaptation. You're adapting by behaving, by exploring. You explore. Does that require consciousness? Well, no, I don't think it does. I mean, I'm reasonably certain that it doesn't. And yet, when you look at these very, very humble sorts of organisms, it seems to us, and we, we often do this, we, they're doing these things, and it seems like there's some sort of an intention. But really, you, you have to be really, really careful about that. You well, know? You're reminding me, actually, of uh, the youngest daughter of Gregory Bateson, who's the granddaughter of William Bateson. You reminded me when you said peas, right? Because, of course, oh. that's Mandel's work on peas that was studied by William Bateson very carefully at Cambridge. Oh. And that's how he, he finally coined the term around 1900 of genetics. But at the time, he thought that the true lesson, uh, this is according to Nora Bateson, the youngest daughter of Gregory, mm -hmm. that apparently William always told Gregory the most important thing that he discovered is that we must treasure our exceptions. And that idea was so appalling to the eugenicists that were in control of the Cambridge Biology Department that by 1912, he left that department. There's this tension between mm -hmm. the biology and the way that we think about biology, nature and the way that we hold on to nature. And there's something in this cognition machine called our mind. It can think about nature in these simplistic ways that feel very robust to the observer. And this is a great mystery because of course this creates a great tension and makes the perception of some of nature's secrets all the more impenetrable. I find it interesting that Oxford and Cambridge were known for their eccentrics. These dons who would do crazy things, it would seem, but they were really wonderful teachers, even by keeping the students entertained by, by their curious habits. Mm -hmm. So eccentricity has to do with variability mm -hmm. in the ways that intellectuals think. And Professor Spooner, for example, or Dean Spooner, was famous for making Spoonerisms. Mm -hmm. And the chances are that his undergraduates at that time made up their own stories about Spooner's alleged Spoonerisms. 
so that what you get is an explosion. It's replication of the repertoire with variation and oddballs coming out from the various families that sent their sons at that time. But what Bateson was looking at was something much darker. He was looking at the unacceptable. Like, so that points out in a really fun way, the acceptable range of eccentricities within the Oxbridge establishment. But it shouldn't be forgotten that just like sometimes, you know, antigens and antibodies can both be successful. It's important to remember they also can be both not successful. The example that I'm giving is the one that William Bateson gave that when he put the focus on genetics, not on the selected, but on the unselected and how important they were for the repertoire. And namely, does that mean they did not reproduce or? Well, you know, there's all this unreported. You know, I have biologist friends, I mean, botanist friends that tell me that something like 20% of the seed pole is actually quite eccentric mm -hmm. and just not discussed. It's, yeah. Because it's not in service of the modern idea, the modern determinist idea of biology. But Bateson, when he looked directly, you know, spent yeah. 20 years looking at Mandel's work on peas, he realized the exceptions are key. Mm. But of course, that idea of exceptions was going directly. Now we think of eugenics as a program that was only popular amongst Nazis, mm. you know? But also part of this is to understand just how powerful eugenics was in terms of the established thinkers about biology. And Bateson certainly didn't feel welcome there. And even though he came up with one of the most important ideas to that department ever, by codifying and creating the paradigm of thought known as genetics, right? And actually names it. He himself felt so uncomfortable with the context within this very accepting community of many eccentrics. But in this same community, this idea, the idea focused on the unacceptable range was unacceptable to them. So then the question is, why was that okay? That's a parable for the, for the world as it is today. In the world of science, that's a parable that's that is very topical to what we're confronting. Anybody who's interested in the science of consciousness and studying mm -hmm. consciousness as, as a truly biological phenomenon, that's what we're confronting today. It's really intriguing, sort of going back to consciousness, and so we have to reckon with that. But also coming back to what I started with before, we have what three point seven, three point eight billion years of the history of life on this planet, virtually almost from the beginning of the planet itself, not quite, you know, probably about seven, six or 700 million years after the planet formed. You've got life, right? Life is doing stuff. Life is adapting. There are processes. And what life forms are you specifically talking well, about? I'm talking about very primitive single cell organisms. I'm talking about organisms that might not have even had nuclei at a certain point in time and right. the eye evolved and then mitochondria came in as speaking of invaders they turned out to be you know symbionts they weren't so it's know, a win-win it's a win-win for both sides for the right. mitochondria and for the cell that it invaded right. the bottom line though is we have this long storied history of what i believe to be essentially non-conscious processing of sort of an immediate environment let's not say the world let's say of an immediate environment within the purview of a single cell right? However, wherever the single cell can range in its limited range, there's a long history of that. And that's mm. perhaps the majority of the history of life on earth. And something happens. Over time. Over time. And something happens. And I think you and I, and, and, and I believe Mark would agree that somehow consciousness figures in much, much later, but consciousness as we understand it from the human example that 
can be offered in terms of any kind of experimental evidence or anything that we can go on tell us that the conscious processing we're observing in humans and certain non-human animals is a complex phenomenon. And what it is and what it does is contingent on a degree of sophistication and, shall we say, heterogeneity of the system itself. It's composed of different things, different parts, different components. And yet, it's overlaying a very, very ancient evolutionary history where all kinds of non-conscious things have been going on, going along just fine, and they've been doing what they need to do. There are some, but not that many, punctuated events right. in evolution, and we simply don't know about this. Of course, it could have grown very slowly over evolutionary times, or it could have popped up in some sense. Right. And part of it, from a perception standpoint, naturally, from a modern perspective, we might naturally focus on, quote unquote, the winners, the victors, when actually the process isn't like that at all. What really? Bateson was trying to scream out was, man, if we only focus on the winners, then we're ignoring the whole nature of this repertoire. Years of talks with Dr. Edelman about this subject. And what we actually compare was the antigen and the antibody and its interaction in a complex way and a magician doing the kind of techniques where you can adapt in real time. So mostly tricks without gimmicks, where it's just literally your gimmick is understanding the limitations and perception of your audience. So that allows maximum adaptation, right? So you're not limited by your lights or your script, or you can just play. That play is very analogous to this. So, so I get very sensitive when I hear these kind of determined descriptions. Even like after talking to Dr. Edelman for a long time, I when I would read Stephen Jay Gould, I'd get nervous because I thought like a good part of the story was just being left out. Mm. Right. Let me just cut to the chase and sort of punctuate the discussion at this point by saying that, of course, as I mentioned before, it's there's a certain degree of sort of mystical wish fulfillment involved in some people's minds when they think about what consciousness is and does, right? They often sort of mystify it. The intriguing thing to me is that as a biologist, one of the things that I've noticed is we have a long and good record of studying a lot of non-conscious processing in complex brains involving, you know, the storage of memories, involving all of these things. We've worked out in really pretty good detail certain aspects of the, even the cellular or subcellular components of what we think of as memory, long-term memory, short-term working memory, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And the intriguing thing is and I'll, maybe I'm in the minority, consciousness not only overlays the, this process memory, but consciousness is dependent on some form of memory. And yet the interesting thing is, so consciousness didn't necessarily come just straight out of the ether magically and appear. It's based on, it, it depends for what it is and what it does on processes that have been there, already resident in complex brains, for tens or even close to hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of years. You have memory oh, formation. I think you're right, exactly. Yeah. And so consciousness That's... is along the biological, it's along the line of biological evolution. Just to sort of close this aspect out, I think, that consciousness can be firmly embedded within biology, in my mind, based on the fact that all kinds of processes that aren't really conscious are important for conscious processing. Exactly. So anatomically, that mystery has to do with right around the line 
mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. where the cerebral cortex, both hemispheres, mm-hmm. begin to emerge earlier, the paleocortex, of mm-hmm. course, underneath, and then the neocortex, which doubles the number of layers mm-hmm. from three to six, mm-hmm. roughly. And the neurons in cortex, there are just about as many neurons in cortex as there are in the little cerebellum. These two little things hanging underneath the rear of the brain, right. which have just as many neurons mm-hmm. as the cerebral cortex does, mm-hmm. but they're tiny little neurons, mm-hmm. and they're wired differently mm-hmm. from the cortex. Mm-hmm. And the very ancient belief, which is probably true, is that the cerebellums don't support consciousness. Well, how can that be? It's got 80 billion neurons or whatever it may be. Right. Uh, but it doesn't do the same functions, and it appears not to support perception, conscious perception, conscious thought, mm-hmm. conscious intuitions, uh, conscious higher states. Any of this wonderful stuff is probably not coming from the cerebellum. Cerebellums, uh, you know, they're extremely complex. Right. I think the bottom line is, I think we three can at least say at this point, we can put, we can draw our line in the sand, perhaps, I hope we can, and say consciousness is fundamentally biological, even if it seems to sort of put us into a weird purview where where we have to deal with a material object, the brain, somehow instantiating this immaterial aspect, thought, conscious thought, conscious recall. These things, which don't seem to have in and of themselves, they don't seem to, to most people, to most lay people, to have a material basis. And yet, they are generated from the interactions that occur in this fundamentally biological entity, the brain. Uh, you have to confess to, uh, to a sort of expanding universe here, so that the word biology, which for me really began to fill in during my time at the Neurosciences Institute, with Gerald Edelman as director, which was a a fabulous time for me. And biology now seems to encompass psychology, anthropology, sociology, political science, the World Wide Web. And in one sense or another, we're really talking about biology. And to stay sane in that expanding universe, my favorite term right now Actually, the favorite term that was invented by Jörg Panksepp in his wonderful book uh, on the neuroscience of emotions, Jörg essentially started to use the word mind-brain as a single word, or possibly brain-mind, but I like mind-brain for some reason. And so I think we're talking about the mind-brain in anthropology, in paleontology, mm-hmm. we're talking about magic, We're talking about sensory perception of the visual world. Mm -hmm. We're talking about social perception, on and on and on. And basically, right now, I'm I'm trying to experiment with the word psycho, which means mind, and bio, which means life, and logos, which means knowledge. And I think that is our natural domain, uh, which was actually said by Aristotle in the 5th century BC, And Aristotle was right. And Dr. Edelman's great summary, which is the brain is in body and the body is embedded. The brain embodied, the body embedded, Mm -hmm. right? Which puts everything in context because we can think about the biology, but the biology is in a, 
you know, it's a physical biology. There's also a social biology. It's in a social context, right? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. in a specific, very specific environment. And all oh, those... And the magic word, context. Yep, yeah, bingo. You can't remove context. And uh, some theories, which I shall not mention here, unfortunately, <laughs> are, are guilty of, I think, that cardinal sin. And that's, some, that's something for another time. But I want to thank both of you. And I'm going to remember... David, in terms of context, I'm going to remember Mark in terms of what will it be? What's your single magic word? I have to go with context as well. So context seems to be a point of agreement between actually all three of us, because I probably have used the word context in writing uh, more than most other people. So I want to thank David and Mark for being here. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Bernard Bars, and this is On Consciousness. <laughs>